Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 245. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a movie I've been waiting on for decades, literally. It was filmed between 1970 and 1976 and nobody has seen it before this year. And that movie, of course, is Orson Welles' last movie. The Other Side of the Wind starring John Huston, Oya Kodar and Peter Bogdanovich. Hell of a story behind this one. And Netflix have finally released it, so I was very excited to see it. I've seen it twice now, and I'm going to talk at you about it. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll start talking about the film. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how has everybody been? Yeah, I know it's been a month, but I was in Sydney and all sorts of real-life stuff interfered. Nothing particularly bad or life-changing, but I was up there for nine days, and I had a good time. Uh, to a certain extent, Sal wasn't with me. And I was very busy shooting stuff for YouTube videos, which taught me that I have a lot to learn about shooting YouTube videos, which is not a bad thing. Learning curves are always exhilarating, if nothing else. And um, yes, and then I got back and then other stuff interfered. But so we're back on track. It's going to be fortnightly as usual. Now, I should let you know about the Richard rule. There's a new rule in the podcast, both of them, the Richard rule. And my dear friend, Richard H., who gave me a bottle of beer as well, so this kind of grease the wheels a little bit he's also a patreon subscriber of the podcast he said that he's sick of waiting through all of the what i've been doing stuff to get to me talking about movies so in my wisdom i have established the richard rule which is i start talking about the first of the movies if i'm doing more than one movie or even if i'm doing only one movie i start talking about the movies at the 15 minute point of the podcast because that way richard knows where to go so the richard rule is now a part of both Paleo Cinema Podcast and the Martian Drive-In Podcast. So the Richard Rule applies henceforth. And thanks for being a good supporter of the podcast, Richard. I really appreciate it, mate. And anytime you want to give me another beer, I'll be happy. He brews his own beer. So what's not to like about a friend who supports your creative endeavours and gives you home-brewed beer? So there's been a few things happening, but nothing I haven't mentioned in the other podcast. Um, tomorrow is Sally's birthday. It's um, We're going to celebrate it. We've actually found in Melbourne, in the eastern suburbs, the other side of town, an anime cafe based on the anime One Piece. Now, neither of us particularly knows a lot about One Piece. I've got some of the um, manga. I've also got some episodes I haven't watched yet. But the idea of going to an anime cafe for her birthday, for lunch... Uh, appeals to us. So we've got a couple of friends, Sue and Trev, and we are going to the Anime Cafe on the Eastern Suburbs of Melbourne for Sal's birthday tomorrow, which is going to be fun. Apparently the food's pretty good there. 
So we're going to be doing that, which will be cool. I've also been continuing the journey of learning how to do YouTube videos, which is a big ask. Um, I'm really going to have to shoot more footage. I've got a couple of bits of gear that I've forked out money for to assist in that, but it's not about the gear really. It's about applying yourself and knowing what shot you want and gaining that experience to be able to do it. So I put up one already uh, recently so i've done two or three i think i have done three i've done three youtube videos based on my travels in sydney at least one of them i really like <laughs> we can get hypercritical about our own endeavors sometimes and it's not until you look back at them years later that you see whether there was any good in them um where you've changed since you've done it uh yeah the learning curve is fantastic and fascinating and at least for me, and probably not for anybody listening to this, because I'm just waffling about how wonderfully creative I am. I'm not wonderfully creative, but I aspire to be. One thing I am doing, which is more movie-related than the stuff I've been putting out lately, is I'm doing um, two videos, one for the best 10 movies I saw in 2018, and the 10 worst. Now, the 10 worst was easier to compile, because there were some real stinkers this year. Um, movies that just didn't work and were tone-deaf, uh, of course, the list is very subjective, and I'm going to get some pushback against some of the choices on both of the lists, I expect. Nonetheless, I, I thought I'd put it together, and it's kind of timely to do it towards the end of the year. The hard bit, of course, is going to be avoiding copyright strikes by showing too much of stuff from each movie. So if I keep it below three seconds of clips, I can really make that work. And again, it's a creative challenge. And creative challenges where you've got certain limitations um always yeah that, that can be harder but you can kind of go in a different creative direction and kind of go okay i'm going to improvise here and hey that worked so you've got that kind of discovery of new ways of doing things that comes with the restrictions i have on copyright material when i'm doing the youtube videos particularly the movie related ones it's easier when it's all my own footage and i've shot it in sydney um, on beautiful sunny days and all that kind of thing but this time around, I'm going to do the 10, um, script it all out, get it all out there, and I'll put it up on the YouTube channel once I've done so. I can kind of get that done by mid-December. It's a fairly large project when you're talking about 10 different movies twice, one for the good, one for the bad. But, yeah, so that's going to be happening, and, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that one. So what have I been watching? Let me have a look here. Now, Mike White and the Projection Booth podcast – uh, really good movie podcasts. Let me rephrase that. Mike is a good podcaster. The Projection Booth is an excellent movie podcast. Now, I did three episodes all up with Mike, one of which has been released so far. The other two will be released soon. And they were all around the Raymond Chandler fiction as portrayed in movies. So um, with Philip Marlowe, I'm explaining this really badly. Sorry about this. So I've already done Murder, My Sweet. We did The Big Sleep, and we just finished doing The Long Goodbye, the one with Elliot Gould. So that's done. Uh, they'll be up very soon, and please go and listen to them, both Mike and um, Eric Cohen, with whom we did the podcast, are very knowledgeable. Mike has, in the third of those episodes an interview he did with Elliot Gould about The Long Goodbye, amongst other things. And Mike's been doing some long-term projects with Elliot Gould, or about Elliot Gould more than anything. And that should be fun. I'm looking forward to hearing the whole podcast myself. 
So, of course, I watched The Long Goodbye. I watched The Big Sleep with Bogart and a few other things. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun watching that. So let me see what else have I been watching more recently. Um, rewatched Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah, it's fun. It's a kind of lesser Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, but it ties some things up and opens up some new things. And, of course, it expands the technological um, innovation that uh, Marvel in particular has become famous for. So, yeah, rewatching it, it didn't have the punches that it had the first time, particularly in the post credit sequence, but I still enjoyed it. Uh, then I picked up a movie for a dollar at um, an op shop, which is like a thrift store, in Geelong. When I went out down there with Sal, we were looking for some stuff, and I found this for a dollar on DVD. It's not that common here in Australia, so finding it was a bit of a rarity and a bit of fun. And it was Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1, which is basically a whole bunch of shtick tied together with um, vaguely historical contexts. Um, crazy amount of kind of borscht belt and, and comedians from Henny Youngman, uh, Charlie Callis, all, all sorts of people turn up in there. And it was fun re-watching it and just hearing the one-liners and the visual jokes and all that kind of thing in there. It's um, as sexist as fuck, but Mel Brooks uh, wasn't known for his subtly in that area, though he didn't go as far as a lot of other people did at the time in portraying women badly. Nonetheless, it was a lot of fun. So I saw that. Uh, I saw Hotel Artemis as well with Jodie Foster, jo Dave Bautista, and Sterling K. Brown. It sits slightly in the future about a hotel where the nurse, played by Jodie Foster, looks after people who um, are criminals who get injured. So she's basically running a hospital for criminals. Uh, they run it on a subscription basis, and it's happening just as there are major riots in L.A. I liked it. Um, it's a very much a kind of smaller movie. There are, it didn't have some of the punches towards the end that I really would have liked to have seen. First-time filmmaker, so make some allowances for that. The acting's good. Batista's good. Sterling K. Brown's good. Jodie Foster is excellent in it. Um, yeah, you might want to check that one out. It's not going to be at the top of any of my lists for 2018, but I did enjoy seeing it. Now, what else have we got here? I watched The Giant Spider Invasion from the late 1970s, um, which is a really bad giant spider movie done with physical effects and with a lot of actors who were kind of toward the end of their careers. Alan Hale's in it, uh, Barbara Hale's in it. They're not related, but she's in it. And her husband, Bill Williams, uh, Leslie Parrish, who played Daisy May in the Little Abner musical back in the 50s. Um, yeah, it's kind of fun to watch because it's so bad. So I kind of slummed it a little bit in watching the giant spider invasion. But I enjoyed it. Uh, nonetheless, I did enjoy it. The only other thing I've seen is a documentary called The Green Girl, which is about Susan Oliver, who played the green alien in Star Trek. It was about her career as a female actor. She later went on to do some directing as well. She became a very adept pilot, amongst other things, and kind of you know, had a kind of mixed life. But it's an interesting view of a woman doing a, an acting career, mostly on television, but also in movies in the middle of the 20th century and the kind of things she went through to do it and the opportunities that she had and the opportunities that weren't 
given to her because of her gender and because she was an attractive woman whom people in the 50s, 60s and 70s tended to underestimate in the, the context of Hollywood. So it's pre-Me Too, but there's a little bit of kind of yeah, underestimating the abilities of women. And she was a very, very fine actor. She was a fine director who was learning her craft at towards the end of her career. And she was also living life on her own terms. So it's very much a feminist piece of work. So if you can get a copy of The Green Girl and watch that, I do recommend it. It's not a bad documentary. It's got a lot of interviews with old actors who have since stepped on the rainbow. Uh, it comes from 2014. Uh, but you might want to check it out if you're particularly interested in that era of film. And why wouldn't you be? Apart from that, I've been watching a few things. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is the updated and a little bit more gory and horrific version of Sabrina the Teenage Witch from the old Archie cartoon days. Yeah, it works. So the season one's pretty good. Some nice acting in it and uh, good character arcs. It was a bit of entertainment and a bit of fun in that. So enjoyed that one. Been watching Legends of Tomorrow and Titans as they come out. Watching the new Doctor Who. Now, I'm going to say something about the new Doctor Who. The episodes themselves are good, and I've got no problem with them at all. They're the usual stuff. They're entertaining. The problem I've got is when you have a male Doctor and playing Doctor Who, he's allowed to flirt with people. He's allowed to kind of have just the hint and the implication of some form of sexuality. In fact, there is um, the fact that the Doctor married River Song and things like that. When you get to a female Doctor... She's got to be slightly masculine and kind of neutral. She's got to be an authority figure, but not have anything to do with a sexuality. You've got to be incredibly asexual. I'm not sure that I like that. I'm not sure if it works for me as a concept, and I'm not sure it works from a gender equity point of view either. Let me know what you think. Um, I mean, David Tennant's Doctor flirted, and other Doctor who's have flirted in the past. But this one seems to be resolutely asexual. And that's a kind of interesting choice by the producers. Anyway, it's almost time to start talking about the elephant in the room, the other side of the wind. But I promised Richard I would get to 15 minutes, so I've still got 30 seconds to go. Oh, yeah, there's a state election um, coming up on the weekend. And I get to go and vote. Voting's compulsory here, and I like that things that way. The other thing we get to do is have democracy sausage. Now, I want you to go and Google democracy sausage if you don't know what I'm talking about, because it's a great Australian tradition, and it's one which I think other countries should adopt, because democracy sausage, for a lot of people, is an important part of going and voting. Anyway, it's time now to talk about the other side of the wind. I'm going to play the trailer and then go through a little bit of the history of the film and tell you what I thought about it. Jay can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. Just like me and God. How could you tell us apart? Patrick's new movie? The Other Side of the Wind. What's that about the movie? We don't talk about the movie. So you old guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about? Well, we don't actually know. What do we know? 
Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Mr. Hannaford, could you please slow down? Mr. Hannaford! What he creates, he has to wreck. It's a compulsion. Want me to bring you another Scott? <laughs> we'll have our own movies. A real movies. Well, here it is. If anybody wants to see it. Well, the other side of the wind. I don't think there's another movie that's quite like this in the way that it's reached an audience. It's had an incredibly long and weird um, journey to get uh, to our screens. And there's a whole documentary that Netflix have also done about that exact process. It's called You'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And it talks about Wells' difficulties getting the project to happen. Uh, the fact that he filmed it over a six-year period, the fact that he had to beg at an AFI uh, ceremony honouring him for somebody to give him money to help let him finish the film, and all of the other background things that really kind of made this movie a lost film or even just not an incomplete film for... Well, he started filming it in 1970, so what does that make it? 48 years of production to get it to where it can be released to an audience now. I don't think there's another film that's gone through that particular arc and that caused its uh, creator that much pain, except possibly Terry Gilliam's Don Quixote movie. That one I'll I'll, I'll pay, but uh, this one is a long and crazy journey to, to get it from his mind to the screen. I actually saw on television that AFI um, ceremony honouring Orson Welles and I saw the clip from, well, the clips from The Other Side of the Wind that were done then and I wanted to see the movie then. So, you know, I've been engaged with this since about 1980 maybe and that's a problem in some ways because it creates an expectation in the audience. Just think of the expectation that people have for the second half of the Infinity War saga with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that's only a wait of a year. And then you've got an awesome Wells movie that you've been waiting for for 40 years. There's just such an overwhelming expectation that you can generate if you let yourself into, what you know, wow, I want to see this. I bet it's going to be fantastic. I hope it's fantastic. If it's shit, I'm going to be really disappointed. All of those thoughts we have about movies in which we're invested really do come to the fore when you think about watching a movie like this. And again, there's no movie like this. Of course, while he was producing this movie, he did make a film that came out and is widely loved by a lot of people, myself included, and that is F for Fake, his little legitimate movie he made about art forgery and Oya Koda and magic and mystery and misdirection and media um that film rightly had a criterion edition and it's a movie of which i am very fond i'm so fond of it i don't watch it very often because i want to let memory fade a little bit so that some of the delightful things that occur in the film come to me as something of a surprise 
But the other side of the wind is something that I'm glad I got to see. Uh, I will talk right at the end about whether I think it's a success or not and whether I love it or not, but I'm very, very glad I got to see it, and I've seen it twice now. And I will say that I hope it gets a disc release because I really want to get this on a physical medium. Well, the movie's in two parts, and there's some of this stuff you're going to know, but excuse me while I kind of go through it. There's the filmmaker, there's a film itself as we know it, and there's the film within a film, which is the film that aging Hollywood director Jake Hannaford is making and is trying to get money to finish. Um, the film tells us about the last day of Jake Hannaford's life. He's got his 70th birthday, and on his 70th birthday, he dies in a car crash out in the desert. And we start with a narration by an old man called Brooks Otterlake, who was the acolyte of Jake Hannaford. He's played by Peter Bogdanovich. Originally, it was going to be the impressionist Rich Little doing this, and Little did film some things, and he does turn up in a number of the party scenes in the film, but he couldn't handle the kind of stop-start nature of Wells's filmmaking performance as he kind of kept going with the movie when he got money. And so to fulfil some gigs in Vegas and other places, Rich Little left the production. Whether it would have been a better choice to play Brooks Lake than Peter Bogdanovich, who knows? Probably not, because I think that Otterlake may have been better played by somebody else, but I don't think that Rich Little would have been that person. So the movie takes place on the last day of Hannaford's life, and the two parts look incredibly different. The first part is filmed on a number of different media, a number of different cameras, uh, black and white colour, grainy, good lighting conditions, bad lighting conditions, bad lighting conditions with um, lamps in the background to try to light things up. And it shows that 70th birthday of Jake Hannaford, who's got an incredible reputation as an auteur in film. And people have made a lot of parallels between him and Wells, but there's aspects to Hannaford that aren't the kind of character aspects that Orson Welles possessed. Let's just put it that way. And so we get the first part of the film is filmed almost in montage from the viewpoints of all of these hangers-on and documentarians and people doing biographies and um, documentaries about Hannaford. There are whole swarms of them who kind of circle around him like flies around a piece of meat. And so we get the story told using the footage from all of those different cameras held by all of those different people as Hannaford leaves the studio and goes out to his desert ranch to celebrate his 70th birthday. And so we've given the story piecemeal from the viewpoints of a whole bunch of different characters. And there are some really cool actors in this film who pop in and pop out and become a part of the story and we quickly understand who they are now i'll just go through the cast and talk about most of them so that you've got a bit of an idea of course we've got john houston playing jake hannaford this was around the same time as houston played noah cross in chinatown so we've got that age john houston and he plays it a little bit John Fordy, you know, with that kind of curmudgeon thing. There's a passive aggressiveness about him. There's a distaste for kind of forthright women that's a part of his character. 
and he's um, the thing on Wikipedia says about him that the um, he's an early he's based on an earlier Hollywood director like John Ford, Rex Ingram, Raoul Walsh, and William A. Wellman. So he's that kind of a guy. Then we have Oya Koda, who was Wells's mistress at the time. Beautiful woman. Probably not a great actress, but a stunning-looking woman. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later. She plays the actress in the film within a film, and she also plays the actress who plays the character in the film within a film as a part of um, Hannaford's entourage. Then, of course, we get Peter Bogdanovich as Brooks Odelake, who's a protege, and he's a very successful director in his own right now. He's cutting some deals that will make him $40 million in the near future, which was an immense amount of money at the time, and it's probably not a little amount of money now. Then we get Susan Strasberg playing a film critic called Juliet Rich. And the, the, um, the buzz is that the character was a thinly veiled spoof of Pauline Kale. And Wells and Pauline Cowell had a public feud um, over an essay she wrote called Raising Cain, which suggested that he didn't write Citizen Kane. Originally, the character was going to be played by Jean Moreau, then it was going to be played by Polly Platt, who was the wife of Peter Bogdanovich at the time, until he hooked up with Sybil Shepherd. But eventually, Susan Strasberg came on and reshot the scenes previously filmed with Polly Platt. And Strasberg's good in this. She's forthright and solid. And even though it was meant to be a kind of shrill, nasty kind of character, I think that she comes across better in 2018 than she might have played in the early 1970s. She's forthright and direct. She's speaking truth to power and asking questions that need to be asked to understand Jake Hannaford and she's cutting through this swarm of documentarians and biographers who swirl around Hannaford and cuts through the bullshit and the kind of idolatry to really nail Hannaford to the wall to a certain extent and now there's another character called Norman Foster, who's playing a character called Billy Boyle, a former child actor from Hannaford's early films, who's become um, a part of the entourage for um, Hannaford. Uh, he's a reformed alcoholic, and he's a kind of yes-man flunky stooge who has uncomfortable things to do, like sitting in a screening room and showing a movie executive the footage that Jake has of his new movie, The Other Side of the Wind and to try to explain it to this young movie producer, which is a kind of thinly veiled Robert Evans character from, you know, the kid stays in the picture, that Robert Evans. And he's floundering while he tries to do it. He doesn't understand what Jake's trying to do with the movie. He's really kind of lost and on edge, and he's terrified that the movie isn't going to get completed and that their, all of their lives will kind of collapse. Now, Norman Foster, who played Billy Boyle, was um, an American actor in the 1930s. He was he directed a lot of Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto films as well, and he worked with um, Orson Welles on the Carnival movie that he did, uh, the Rio Carnival movie for It's All True. That was a documentary movie that Wells was making in Brazil at the time that the studio was butchering the Magnificent Ambersons. 
Norman Foster had a that long and um, quite interesting history with Wells, and he was married to Claudette Colbert at one stage, and then in 1935 he married Loretta Young's older sister Sally Blaine. It was at the end of his career. He died in 1976, but um, he's kind of a tragic and poignant character in this one. I kind of liked his character and the fact that um, Norman Foster played it so kind of raw in an interesting way. Then we've got Bob Random playing John Dale, the star of the movie within a movie, The Other Side of the Wind, young, good-looking guy, supposed to be like Mark Freshett in Dantanioni's um, Zabriskie Point. The movie within the movie of The Other Side of the Wind was supposed to be Orson Welles pastiching um, Antonioni's Zabriskie Point and trying to do an arthouse film of that type. I'll talk more about that in a little bit too because there's some interesting things to say about that. We have Lily Palmer playing Zara Valeska, a retired actress from the 1930s who owns the ranch where Hannaford's party is taking place. The character is based on Marlene Dietrich, with whom Wells was friends for a long time and um, a lover at one stage. Dietrich was unavailable. And Lily Palmer does a really nice job in this one too. She's kind of the voice of sanity in a lot of ways in the chaos of the party. The odd thing is all of her scenes were filmed in Europe. They weren't filmed in America. They weren't filmed at the ranch. They weren't filmed in the studio as well. So that's kind of interesting too. We get Edmund O'Brien playing Pat Mullins, an ageing actor, who's a bit of a fascist and is one of Hannaford's cronies. We get Mercedes McCambridge in there as um, Hannaford's editor, Maggie Noonan. Um, we get Cameron Mitchell turning up as um, Matt Zimmerman, a makeup artist who's a friend of um, Hannaford's and does all the makeup. And then we get Paul Stewart, who had been working with the Wells as far back as the Mercury Theatre in the 30s. He plays Matt Costello, who's a personal assistant to Hannaford. Um, we also get Gregory Sierra, who we remember from Barney Miller in the 1970s. Sierra's played Jack Simon, a screenwriter who's supposed to be a little bit like John Millius. And he starts asking some of the questions that are asked about Hannaford um, when things start getting to the point. We get an actor called Tony Selwood playing the Baron, who's a parody of Wells's former business partner, John Houseman, um, who went on to do a, a number of interesting things himself. We also get an actor called Stafford Rep, who was Chief O'Hara in the 1960s Batman series, and he's playing a different, very different role in this. Uh, he was, um, he started in the middle of his life as an actor. He's got one of those truly great Irish mugs, um, and he, he turns up in there as well for a number of scenes, and it's kind of cool to see him in there doing something that isn't just like a cliché cop role. And it, um, it kind of worked for me. He did a number of uh, TV appearances in the 50s and 60s. But in this one, he was, it was kind of nice to see him. It was reassuring and strangely comforting to see Stafford Rep in this particular film. Um, there are a whole bunch of other actors who turn up. Some directors turn up as themselves. We get Peter Jason, uh, the character actor Peter Jason, turning up as a character called Grover. But we get Henry Jaglum, Paul Mazursky, Dennis Hopper, Curtis Harrington, Claude Chabrol, Stefan Audran, George Jessel playing himself, Angelo Rosito, the um, man of small stature, and Cameron Crowe turns up 
and Orson Welles does the voice of a journalist in the background. It's there's a, just a, a chaos around the the frame for the film within the film in this movie, where it takes me as an audience member, and and even though I'm fairly savvy with these kind of things from having had a misspent youth in the cinema. It takes a while for us to understand the way that Wells is telling the story. And on second viewing, it became more coherent for me than it was the first time around. And that was kind of cool. I really liked the fact that he challenged an audience and there's overlapping dialogue and they cut from scenes. And some of those scenes would film five years apart on different continents. But they all kind of come together to make a kind of cohesive whole. And that... Editing was monstrous. Now, because I do that tiny bit of editing that I do for the YouTube videos, I kind of got an understanding on how you end. You can look. You look at the film you've got, and you've got up. I mean, in my case, I might have like twenty or thirty scenes that I've got to try to put into a cohesive narrative, and that's a big ask. Just having twenty or thirty bits of film. Wells had a hundred hours of footage. He had a work print. He had edited scenes, annotated scripts, memos, and directives to try to put together this movie. Scrunching down 100 hours of film into a cohesive couple of hours of cinema is a Herculean task. It's an amazing effort. I understand why it took so long for Wells to edit it. There, uh, Gary Graver worked on the editing as well. He edited um, a scene in the movie, within the movie, which takes place in a women's bathroom which is an incredibly complex scene, kind of getting a flow with all these different bits of footage in different formats and putting it together into something that does make sense, even if you've got to watch it twice to kind of let it settle in and, and totally make sense to you, is a hell of an achievement. It's not just Wells' achievement, it's the achievement of the people who've recently done work on it, on Gary Graver, who spent the rest of his life trying to get this movie happening. There were crazy things going on that stopped this movie from coming out. Things like the Shah of Iran's family when the Iranian Revolution happened. They um, put some legal impediments in front of the film because they'd put money into it. And the film sat in a bank vault in France for decades before it um, finally came out and could be worked on. It's, um, it, yeah, the task that they achieved in finally getting this movie out, I can only applaud and be awed by. You get some kind of interesting things happening in as they're driving to uh, the ranch as well. You get to see um, them driving past a drive-in where I drink your blood and I eat your skin. I run the drive-in marquee, the bus carrying all of the um, hangers-on pulls up in front of adult bookstores and, and things like that. You kind of get a real sense for 1970s Los Angeles, how Hollywood is changing as it flows past these people. The world's changing, and for the most part, Jake Hannaford's sidekicks and hangers-on and acolytes and everything like that, except for the young people who are idolising him and trying to put together documentaries and biographies of him, all of his actual work colleagues are older and are a part of a much more aged Hollywood than is currently popular. And that brings us to the movie within a movie, which is Jake Hannaford's attempt to be modern and hip and relevant and do an art house film. And it's pretty clear as we dive into the movie 
that he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. The star John Dale has walked out of the film, and we don't understand why until later in the film as certain things are revealed. And it's pretty obvious that the film's not going to get completed. Jake Hannaford has died, um, as the prelude tells us, and so it's going to kind of be a lost film, which is an odd thing because that's exactly what happened to Wells and this particular film. So there are parallels between Orson Wells and this film and Jake Hannaford in this film, which occurred decades after the death of Orson Wells and the um, end of filming of The Other Side of the Wind. It's There's crazy blurring lines between reality and fantasy and the film itself that occur in this. And a lot of people are making some serious parallels between Wells and Hannaford. And although I think that um, it was Wells talking more about how Hollywood is changing at the time he made the film and how many, many people aren't changing with it and that older Hollywood people, the first, in a sense, the first generation of people who became old making movies in Hollywood and how they struggle to maintain the position they previously had and how Hollywood's not going to let them do that. So there's that theme running through the film as well, which is really important. Then we get to the film within a film, which is abstract and stylish. It's filmed widescreen. It's filmed, for the most part, on the MGM backlot, which was decaying at the time Wells had access to it. Some people say that he snuck in there, but there is a lot of documentation saying that he actually had use of the backlot, at MGM, he, uh, there may be a, stot, uh, a shot he stole at the front of Paramount Studios where there are people running into the car to go with Jake Hannaford to the ranch, but it's pretty clear that it's the MGM backlot that we see because there's very familiar um, areas of the MGM backlot, things like the train station set, and we do get Oya Kodar walking nude into the house of Mickey Rooney's character Andy Hardy and all of those Andy Hardy movies that MGM did in the 40s. We see Oya walking into Andy Hardy's house, which may have been Orson Welles having a bit of a slide just there. Now, the movie went in, my movie is about a, a boy played by Bob Random chasing an enigmatic woman who may or may not be Native American, played by Earl Kadar, who was definitely not a Native American, she was Croatian and still is, but he he's kind of you know, smitten with her and is chasing her through slightly abstracted landscapes and through movie backlots and across deserts and all sorts of other things because he's fascinated with her. They go to a disco and she gets soaking wet going to the disco and so she um, strips off in the ladies room and there's an extended scene in the ladies room with some kind of slightly abstracted lesbian content in there and some nudity there's um implied fellatio in one of the stalls as well which is kind of bold for very early 1970s and eventually the girl played by okada that's what she's called in the movie the girl walks out wearing um, the boy's raincoat. All she's wearing is a raincoat. 
She gets in the car with the boy and her boyfriend, and then there's a scene which is mind-blowingly good. There's a scene of her making love with the Bob Random character in the car, in the rain as they're driving down a wet highway while her boyfriend is driving the car. And it's filmed beautifully. It's erotic. It's abstract. It's seen from a whole bunch of different angles. It's intimate. There's nothing like it in Orson Welles' previous career. One of the things they said about Oya Kodara is the fact that she brought sex to Orson Welles' movies. And she does. She spends a significant part of her role in the movie within a movie nude. And she is stunningly beautiful. Um, There's no question of that. And in that car scene, it's an incredibly erotic piece of cinema. And it really does work. We see her breasts. We kind of see her hips pounding. But it doesn't stray into hardcore. But it conveys the intimacy and the kind of intensity of lovemaking in a way that I haven't seen in a mainstream Hollywood movie before. It really is mind-blowingly good, that scene. And in fact, all of the scenes of the movie within a movie are shot beautifully, and even though there is some fairly obvious phallic symbolism in various parts of it, I love the way that Wells uses these backlots. He uses light and shadow incredibly well. He uses um, the flats that are on the backlot, you know, the kind of fake walls that they use in studios. In a beautiful way, he uses bits and pieces of stuff that you'd find on a backlot to create this abstract world through which these characters are running. And that worked for me really well. The movie within a movie, even though it was a pastiche of arthouse films like Antonioni's The Brisky Point and things like that, it stands up and it shows that even this late in his career, Orson Welles was a powerful filmmaker. Nobody was making movies like this even at the time. They were making movies that were sort of like this, but there are little bits of business that occur in these scenes that really work. There's a, a moment where you think that the girl is walking out of a dust storm, but it's not. All it is is some clever cutting. Someone's thrown a handful of dust and pebbles up in the air, and she's in the distance behind that, but she steps out of that cloud of dust and pebbles, and it's a moment of magic. It's Wells using his skills as a stage magician, on film and giving us things that are surprising and kind of wow. The movie within a movie is done silent as well. There are sound effects. Um, Wells actually filmed it without sound and then they folded in the sound effects afterwards. But um, it, for most of the frame around the film within a film is constant talking. It's people constantly talking to each other, battling with each other verbally, walking around each other, walking past each other. In the cars, there are people throwing questions and you see different viewpoints on those questions. It's an incredibly dense verbal environment in that film around things. And then you get to the film within a film and it doesn't have dialogue. It's silent. It's all about the image. It's all about what you see and what you hear and the way the filmmaker and the editor allow you to understand what's on the screen. These parts of The Other Side of the Wind are some of Wells' most beautiful images, some of his most awesome images, and show that not 
giving Wells funds to make movies it was an incredible loss to cinema. The, the fact that the money men wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do and he wasn't given the money to make the films that we wanted to see. He made a movie in the 1960s called The Deep, which had Lawrence Harvey in it, apart from a few other people, which kind of got completed, but is a lost film as well. He had a whole bunch of different projects that didn't get the money, and so he'd have to run off and do commercial projects in order to get more money so he could keep going with his film. He really did kind of... He was on a treadmill of trying to make the money to make the films he wanted to make, and then he didn't have enough money to make the films he wanted to make, and somebody else got the rights to things. It, his life, probably after Touch of Evil in the late 1950s, was 20 years, 20 or 30 years, hang on, 20 odd years, 25 years, of running around trying to get projects done. And that's got to be stressful. And the fact that when he did the project like The Other Side of the Wind, it's mesmerizingly good. It's visually, the movie within a movie in this film is crazy good. See it on the biggest screen you can because I think, it worked. for me, it worked. I think, yeah, he was doing a pastiche of other directors, but in pastiching them, he exceeded them. And that's pretty damned impressive. Now, to get back to the frame story for a moment, the, the bit around the film within a film, there are some implications about um, Odelaide's relationship with Hannaford, which are kind of interesting. Odelaide does watch the film within a film, which gets shown to um, the people at the party in various ways. That They start showing it, and then the film um, stops because the power's gone out. They get the generators from the barn, and they start the thing up again. Then all the power goes out again, and then they move the whole lot to a dri local drive-in theatre where the rest of the footage that exists is shown. And that's kind of inter an interesting progress because you're going from a comfortable, wealthy milieu, then they get the power from the stable, then they end up in a drive-in theatre where low-budget, low-rent movies are shown. So you can see a kind of decline there, which is somewhat interesting. There are some revelations about Hannaford that do come out, which aren't as shocking now as they were in the 1970s. But nonetheless, I think the way to watch this film is to realise that it is a movie of the 1970s. Because it's a new film which hasn't been shown before in some ways, and we're watching it in 2018, yet there's an, a way... We can, we can kind of make the mistake of seeing it through modern eyes. And I don't think you can do that with this film. I think you've got to see it as a film of the 1970s and really lock that into your consciousness while you're watching it because it, in that context, it's a very fine film. In a context of a movie from 2018, um, it, it can be lessened by kind of that kind of a filter. And you probably want to see the film in the optimum headspace, if you know what I mean. Going, okay, this is a 1970s film that's been lost. We're going to watch it as that. It's an Orson Welles film that I haven't seen before, which is something that hasn't come along in a long, long time. <coughs> Excuse me. Hasn't come along in some people's lifetimes. There hasn't been a new Orson Welles film since F for Fake in the mid-1970s. So if you're younger than that, this is the first Orson Welles film that's been released in your lifetime. And there's something really weird and wild about that. It's like finding a new Chaplin film nobody's seen or a new film by any other really good film director, a Fellini film that you haven't seen, an Ozu film that nobody's seen, a movie by 
Jean Renoir or Max Ophels or anybody, finding a, a film that hasn't been seen from a major film director who has a clear vision of what he wants and puts that on the screen beautifully is a gift to be treasured. And I love this film a lot. I really liked it. I think that the story behind it only enhances it and the parallels between Jake Hannaford and Orson Welles, some of which were deliberate, but some of which time and events have increased, make it that much more intense as well. It really is a film that you should see. You should see it more than once. And if you possibly can, end up with a copy of it because it's a unique film from a lot of different viewpoints and there are moments of intensity and incredible beauty in it as well, which is the bit that surprised me. So check it out, The Other Side of the Wind. You really should see this one. So that's about it this time around. It's very hard to talk about this film because there's so much there and yet you don't want to come across as a wanker. If I did come across as a wanker, I apologise. But I've really tried not to. I've tried to give the film full value. Um, the acting is on point. The direction is superb. And the film within a film, which is beautifully, intensely Technicolor, I love. So anyway, that's about it. Um, I will be back with a Martian Driving podcast on the weekend. I'll be back with another Paleo Cinema podcast in two weeks. So we're back on schedule, fortunately. In the meantime, thank you for being patient while there was that month of hiatus. I really apologize for that. But I've been doing this for eight years, and if I have a month off now and then, please forgive me. Um, thanks to all of the Patreon supporters. Thanks to everybody who's um, commented about movies and has expressed enthusiasm about me doing this film on social media. Uh, I'll be back soon. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch good films. Watch bad films. Definitely watch the other side of the wind. You may not agree with me about it, and it's fine that you, if you don't, I can really accept that. But do try to look at it through 1970s eyes if you can, and I think that you'll see that it is an extraordinary piece of cinema. I will catch you guys later. And in the meantime, of course, here are the credits told in the style of movie credits to honour the Patreon supporters of this particular podcast. They're all incredibly wonderful people and incredibly generous people and very kind people. There isn't one of them that I wouldn't hold their wallet while they went swimming. So take care of yourselves, and I'll be back very soon. And please sit through the credits. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the Technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary the prop master Morris the musical director Jan the dialect coach Arm and our key grip Matt the rattlesnake wrangler Elaine our scientific advisor Julia our casting director Chris our camera operator Christopher our gaffer Miss Jane our wardrobe mistress Tansy our foley artist Alyssa our location scout Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., our set photographer. Mark D., our extra and David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. 
and our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. 